Good afternoon, or evening. This is uh, class number seven, Relational Theology number seven, and we get to talk about the New Covenant. I'm quite excited about this one. Uh, I have a whole lot, so I'm going to get right into it right after we pray. Lord, give us your spirit who leads us into truth. Open up your word that we might not only understand your word and your truth, but we might know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 We're talking about the big picture of biblical theology, uh, what the Bible says first, the restoring of God's original plan. He made us for relationship and rulership. And today we get to the new covenant. Just as Jesus is the center of all of history, the new covenant is the center of theology. Everything has been pointing toward this and everything from this forward is built on this foundation. So we need to understand the new covenant and it's the restoring of relationship, which really is what salvation is, and rulership, which is what ministry or mission is, the restoring of that to every person. So while we've been talking about relationship and rulership, we're also going to substitute words salvation and the kingdom of God, the rulership of God. And uh, we'll mention those briefly, but then we'll get to those at a later point, uh, the kingdom of God. So to start, we need to see that in Jesus, he not only fulfills the old covenant, but he establishes a new covenant. And that's the, the key. And so we have seen types or prophetic pictures of atonement uh, in the previous covenants. And atonement literally means a, a bringing of two parties together. Some Someone had said it's at-one-ment or the restoring of relationships. So it's really about the relationship part of it. So we're going to talk about that first. But let's just uh, review the prophetic pictures that we find in the Old Testament about atonement. The first is the uh, Passover. You know the story where the uh, Israelites were in Egypt. Uh, God was ready for them to leave. Pharaoh wasn't happy with that. And so he sent a number of plagues. And the last one, they actually put the blood of a sacrificial lamb, which caused the plague of death to pass over the household. So it, it, it instituted the concept of the sacrifice, sacrificial lamb causing death to pass over. And then we have the second one, which is Abraham and Isaac uh, in Genesis 22. And you know the story of God telling Abraham to sacrifice his son. And, and the main part of that story is that God himself will provide the sacrifice. And that was the, the culmination. God is the provider. and He provided the sacrifice. So he himself will provide the sacrifice. And then in Leviticus 16, we see the whole uh, story of the Day of Atonement, which is uh, probably the clearest picture. And in it, uh, it's very clear that they take two goats and then Aaron the priest offers a bull as a, as a atoning sacrifice for himself. And then he takes the uh, first goat and kills it as a sin offering and uses it to make atonement for the holy place, for the altar, and for the tabernacle. In verse uh, 20, 
says, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. So the first goat was to sanctify or to make atonement for the actual place of the offering. And then the second one in verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat. And they shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So we see these two things. One is a sacrifice that made atonement for the the altar and the holy place. It signified the uh, covenant that they had with God. And the second was a carrying away of sin of the people. It's important that we see that because we see in Jesus both. Jesus was the representative sacrifice. It was a sign of the covenant uh, he, that, that he was making, new covenant, he fulfilled the old. But uh, verse 22 of Hebrews 9 says, and according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now that word remission literally means to send away. It carries with the idea of forgiveness or canceling all judgment or punishment, but it really is just that carrying away. That is referring to that scapegoat. It's referring to the carrying away, the removing of sin. Over in John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's that same word, remission, takes away, carries away. And again, he's referring to that scapegoat. 1 John 3, 5 says, you know that he was manifest to take away our sin. And in him, there is no sin. So there's something about Jesus not just being a sacrifice, but actually removing or carrying away sin. Second Corinthians 5 and verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin, being Jesus, God made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteous of God in him. And if you understand the atonement, you understand that all these are referring to that scapegoat who actually carries away sin, takes away, carries away, removes. It's a key to what happens here that is often overlooked. You need to understand as you go back and look at the pictures in the Old Testament, as you look at the the uh, Day of Atonement and all that's around that, it's seen in the context of holiness rather than in the context of justice. Now, we'll talk about that more later, but I just want to make that point that's really more about holiness. So, the fulfilling of the old covenant, Jesus being the sacrifice for sin, the fulfilling of the old covenant, which is a covenant of righteousness, wasn't the end, 
but it was the means to the real goal, which was the new covenant. Too often we get focused on the old covenant, but that was actually fulfilled. And so it was the means, it opened up the door. So Jesus establishes the new covenant. And in Luke chapter 22, from verse 14, we see what we often refer to as the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. When the hour had come, he sat down, and the 12 apostles were with him. And he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. And I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it. Now, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom. I'm going to come back to this. He's been talking about the kingdom. He's been teaching the kingdom. But he makes a statement that the kingdom of God is still to come. We're going to get to that in just a little bit. He took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this is the sacrifice that fulfills the old covenant. And then likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So the key here is that there was a separate cup, a second cup that he took after dinner. This cup was there as a prophetic picture of a new covenant to come. They would normally, the Jews would take the, the first cup and the, the uh, bread, and that would be the Passover meal. And this other cup set there as a prophetic picture of something to come. After dinner, Jesus takes that cup, the, the prophetic picture, and says, this is the cup of the new covenant. But the fact that he did it after dinner also makes it very similar to the marriage proposal. In the uh, Jewish culture at that time, Hebrew culture, marriage was, they were often arranged, but there was still something transitioning where the uh, potential bridegroom and his father would have a dinner with the future bride and her father after they've agreed to this marriage. And they'd sit down and they'd have dinner. And after dinner, the potential groom would take another cup and he would extend it to the bride-to-be signifying establishing covenant I choose you and she would her response if she took the cup and drank from it was that she was agreeing and at that point they came into covenant that was the beginning of the covenant at what we would call the engagement for us, it's actually at the wedding ceremony, but for them, it was at that engagement. That cup was the cup of the covenant. They were establishing a covenant, and then he would go away and build a house and get ready, and then they, he'd come back after that was ready, and they would have a wedding feast. But the wedding didn't signify the beginning of the covenant. It was the cup after dinner, the, the what we would call the betrothal or the engagement that signified the, the covenant. And that's exactly what was happening. Jesus is actually saying he's establishing a new covenant. And it's very similar to marriage.
It's a covenant of love. We're going to get to that in a little bit. I want to go back to the new covenant a little bit. I just want you to see that picture. But understand this, that salvation is the doorway into the covenant. The completion of the old covenant, the sacrifice, the removing of sin wasn't just the end goal. It was the doorway into what was the real goal, which was this new covenant. And so the new covenant was prophesied over in Jeremiah 31, 31, let me read it to you again. They knew exactly what this meant. But, uh, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out of the land to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. See that the typology, the picture there, that is tied in. It's pointing, it's a prophetic statement that even though the old covenant was one of righteousness, God was still treating it as a, uh, as if he were a husband. And when he says that he's a faithful God keeping covenant, he's talking about a relational faithfulness. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, verse 33. After those days, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. So this new covenant was prophesied, but it was also declared to be a better covenant. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Jesus' teaching says this. Do not think that I've come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. A lot of people have this idea that the old covenant was a negative thing. It, it was bad. It wasn't bad. It was designed to show us that we had sin and we needed a, a redeemer. It was never designed to justify us. It was the Pharisees who tried to make living according to all the rules justification. That was never the goal. And so Jesus didn't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. All that is pointing to this new covenant. But then Hebrews chapter 8 Again in verse, uh, from verse 7 of chapter 8. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. That faultless doesn't mean it, it was error. It just means it didn't fulfill the, the purpose. Because finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And he quotes... Jeremiah, I'll put my laws on their mind and write them on the hearts and they shall all know me. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lostness I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. 
Now, what is growing, what is obsolete is growing old and vanishing away. He's actually saying he's fulfilled the old and instituted a new. What we need to, to understand is that it was not a covenant of the new covenant is not a covenant of righteousness. That's already been done. That's fulfilled. But it's a covenant of love. You turn with me again to Matthew chapter 22. I love this because it shows us something again of this type. Matthew chapter 22 and uh, verse 37. Actually, uh, verse 36. One of the teachers which asked him, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? So he's saying, what's the the best of the law? What's the best of the old covenant? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now he was actually saying, of the 661 commandments in the old covenant, the Old Testament, they're all summed up in loving God and loving others. Loving others as you love yourself. But then when he established a new covenant, he doesn't say, go back to this. He said, this was the best of the old, but he establishes something new. In the new covenant, he establishes the law of love. In the new covenant, there's only one commandment. In the old, there was 661. In the new, there's one. And we find it in John chapter 13. And verse 34 is the first time we see it. And Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. This is a new one. That you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. He didn't say love one another as you love yourself. He says love one another as I have loved you. The new covenant exceeds the old. The old pointed to the the new. The old was the best of the old was love God and love others as you love yourself. But the new goes beyond that and says love others as I have loved you. It's a new quality. It's a new standard. Chapter 15 and verse 12. Again, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that, than to lay down his life for his friends. So the quality of love he's talking about is not a self-protecting uh, love, love others as you love yourself. It's a self-sacrificing love. It's a willingness to lay down your life for others. It's a supernatural thing, and we see it once more in Second John From verse 5, now I plead with you, lady, talking to the church, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. He's saying, okay, there's one commandment in in the new covenant, and that commandment exceeds all of the old. 
It's a commandment that we love one another as he's loved us. Now we know that that's only possible when we're walking with him. It's not possible outside of this new covenant. We experience his love, this love of a bridegroom for his bride, this this willingness to lay down his life, pay the sacrifice, we experience that love, and as a result, he fills us with his love that we're then able to walk in a love beyond what anyone had ever known. It's a supernatural grace. It's done in the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the fact that he's with us, the fact that, that he's risen from the dead, which we'll talk about in a moment, but all of that comes together in this new covenant. And everything from that, everything we talk about in the future, the kingdom of God, the church, leadership, everything else hinges on love one another as I've loved you. That's the commandment of the new covenant. And we can't miss that. That's the center of biblical theology. Everything has been leading us to this point. All the previous covenants have been a progressive revelation of God's purpose and plan and his sacrifice to restore us to relationship and rulership and they all come together in Jesus. I get excited. But also, Jesus establishes the kingdom of God or the rule of God. And I want to just mention that briefly because I want to get into something else. We're going to come back to this uh, next week. But as we talked about before, the original rule that God had given to uh, man at creation, that were made in his image and were to have dominion, that was lost at the fall. It was usurped by the devil. Uh, Satan is now called the ruler of this world. We see that in John 12, 31, where Jesus... uh, Jesus says, now the judgment of this world and the ruler of this world will be cast out. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about Satan. Uh, Chapter 14 and verse 30. He says again, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Uh, 16 and verse 11. uh, I go to my father and you'll see me no more of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. That's 1611. And then 1 John 5, 19 says the whole world lies on the influence or the sway of the evil one. So we see very clearly that when that rulership that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden was lost, Satan usurped that and he became the ruler of this world. In fact, when he, if you look in uh, Matthew 4, when he... uh, tempts Jesus in the wilderness and he offers to give him all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus doesn't question his authority to do that. Jesus doesn't say they're not yours because they are very clearly. But what happens is that Jesus in coming reinstates the rule of God, the kingdom of God. So it wasn't just the sacrifice. It was the rule. It was the rulership. It wasn't just salvation. It was establishing the kingdom. In fact, Jesus spoke more about the kingdom than anything else. Let me just give you a couple of scriptures. John 4, 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. 
Mark chapter 1. And verse, uh, from verse 14. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time has come to restore that which was lost. The time is fulfilled for the kingdom to break in again, for the rulership of God to break in again. And then Luke chapter 4. He said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities because for this purpose I've been sent. So part of why Jesus came was to preach the kingdom, but to set up the kingdom, to establish the new kingdom. In fact, he spoke about the kingdom of God about 10 times more than he spoke about salvation. So three scriptures I want to give you from verse 18 of uh, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Luke 24, the end of Luke From verse 44, and he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms according to me. So he fulfilled all the things of the past and opening their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. He said to, to them, thus it was written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And you're witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. It's saying that it was necessary not only for him to suffer, but for him to rise from the dead. Both were necessary. We see over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1, Paul says, I declare to you the gospel, the good news, which I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached. Verse 3, for I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose from the Again, the third day, according to the scriptures. So not only was his death foretold and necessary, but his rising from the dead was necessary because I think in that, the authority of the kingdom was established. The kingdom was established. The kingdom of God wasn't established until he rose from the dead. He's now the ruler of this kingdom. If you look at the, the atonement again, back in the Old Testament, the lamb never rose. The lamb died, but it did rise from the dead. It roasted. <laughs> but, but here we're seeing that Jesus, it was necessary that not only he suffer and die, but that he rise from the dead. So 
So he suffered and died for, for our sins and he rose from the dead to establish the authority of the kingdom. And as long as he's alive, he's still the king of his kingdom. And so the, the rulership of God is being restored, not only to Jesus, but through him to all of us. Relationship is being restored and authority or rulership. Relationship. Every person can come into God's presence because of Jesus. Their sin has been removed. It's been carried away. We're, we're no longer unrighteous. We're now righteous. We've become the righteousness of God and we can come boldly to the throne room of grace, to his presence. But also we've been endued with kingdom authority to carry out his task. And we'll talk about kingdom and kingdom authority a little bit more next week. I'm trying to see uh, how long I've been going and it doesn't look like that is recording. Are we still recording there? Mm-hmm. Okay. That just had gone black and didn't look like it was recording. Sorry. I wanted, wanted to touch all that because I want to jump ahead and give you an understanding of some theories of atonement that have impacted the church and why it might make it difficult for some of you to comprehend what we're talking about. And so there's three basic theories of the atonement. The first theory is called Christ the victor, or the remission or ransom view. And it was the belief of the church from the time of Jesus to about 1100 AD. It was pretty much the accepted view, and it was basically that Jesus' sacrifice removed our sins. He overcame death, the consequence of sin, and established a new covenant of love and a new kingdom based on loving relationship with God. The atonement focus was on removing of sin that didn't allow us to have relationship or access with the holy God. The focus was that the the sin actually was removed. And so holy, as we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, holy literally means separate. God is a holy God, separate, pure, or bright, or brilliant. And as we saw uh, a few weeks ago, we saw that applying to God. It's one of the, uh, the key uh, focuses of, of, of God. One of the key uh, emphasis in the Bible is about God's holiness. But we also saw that holiness was associated with fire, a consuming fire. And so that helps us understand the whole concept of remission, why it was important to send away the sin. It wasn't just forgiving sin, it was actually removing sin. The scapegoat took the sin away. And so the whole idea of there was that our sin was was forgiven, but it was removed. Sin being our rebellion against God, our heart attitude of rebellion. So remission also means similar to redemption, uh, 
ransom. And that was that Christ the victor, that he's established a new kingdom, that he's paid the, the sacrifice to remove our sin, is the main focus of the atonement for about 1,100 years. But somewhere in there, scholars had gotten focus on the ransom part of it rather than remission. And they start asking, who was the ransom paid to? If Jesus ransomed us, who, did, who was the ransom paid to? And the conclusion was the ransom was paid to Satan, who was the ruler of this world. So Jesus paid this ransom to Satan. But about 1100 AD, a church leader named Anselm didn't like that. And so he established what was commonly understood as the second theory of atonement, which was the satisfaction theory. So he didn't like the focus being on Satan. So his premise was that God was dishonored by sin. And therefore there was a debt of honored of honor that must be repaid by honoring him again. But all of mankind wasn't sufficient honor. So Jesus paid the debt. He honored God. So his concept became a, a focus on God's satisfaction for being dishonored, which is why it's called satisfaction theory. Understanding that Anselm lived in the time in, in England in the realm of the knights. A, couple, a few hundred years before, you get the whole story of Arthur, Arthur Camelot the Round Table, but this concept of honor being very, very important. And so that kind of affected his thinking. And so his idea is that God was dishonored and therefore there has to be a satisfaction. And the only one who could satisfy God's honor was Jesus. But that existed only for about 300 years, only. 300 years is a long time, but when the history, it doesn't look like it. Until we get to the third theory of atonement, which affects much of the church today. And that was, that's called the penal substitution theory. And it was actually comes from Calvin about 1500, just a little bit after 1500 AD. And the basic premise that Calvin had was that sin not only dishonored God, but so much so that it needed to be punished. And so Calvin, being a lawyer, brings in a courtroom analogy, a picture. And if you can see it, the picture is this angry God who judges sin and demands punishment. Punishment must be paid. And so God, this angry judge, is demanding punishment, and Jesus steps in and takes the punishment for us. Why it's called the penal substitution theory. He's the substitute for our punishment. One scholar called this the beginning of the legalization of Christianity. The concept of courtroom. The focus was on justice. God is a judge. 
presents God as this angry judge full of wrath. The problem is it creates this conflicted image of God. Is he an angry God, angry judge, or is he a loving God, a loving father? And many have struggled with that. And this Calvinist filter influences much of Christianity where we have this idea of God being this angry guy just waiting for us to get out of line so he can punish us. But what we see as we look back at the prophetic pictures of the atonement is that they don't don't have a focus on justice or judgment. But a context of holiness, God never says he's mad at Abraham. He provides the sacrifice. Hmm. See, if the focus is not that sin dishonors God or justice, but if the focus is holiness, then what we see is that God's always seen as loving. Hmm. He is removing the sin that will cause us to be consumed when his glory and his holiness is revealed. He can't ignore or overlook sin. God's not angry. He's not looking to punish us when we sin. The result of sin is not a choice on God's part. It's the reality of the universe. God is holy. And the result of a holy God with his glory and his holiness will be revealed in such a way that Timothy says he's an unapproachable light. The brilliance, that sin will not be allowed. It it, it will be consumed. It's not that God's angry with it. It's just simply that it won't exist in the presence of this holy God. And God has done everything he can to redeem us not because he's angry, so we don't have this conflict in God that he's angry at. He understands the reality of the universe has done everything he can to redeem us. Now, the reality of the natural world in which we live is that there's gravity. If I had a, a little child and I was at the top of a building and the child was, was walking on the edge of the building, I would get... Upset, I would do everything I can to grab that child from falling off the building because I'm aware of the reality of the universe. If he falls off, gravity is going to take him to the bottom. He's going to die. God's aware of the reality of the universe, that he is holy and that sin will not exist in his presence when his glory is revealed. So it's not that God's angry. He's just saying, this is, this is how it is. And so it's a whole different concept. When we understand that is the focus, we don't see this conflicted image of God. God is always loving. The goal was always the new covenant, a covenant of love. Wow. Makes a difference how we see God. But see, the problem is many of us have had a Calvinist filter. And most of our life, our concept has been this idea of God being a judge and looking for justice. And the reality is that if we don't do all the right things, we're going to get smacked. 
Now, I know that this is a lot for some of us to take in. But let me just remind you, the holiness of God is one of the main emphasis of the Bible. The angels before his throne cry, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6, Revelations 4 and 5, holy, holy, holy. I believe we can't really comprehend the fullness of the love of God. The, the new covenant. If we don't understand the holiness of God. He doesn't send people to hell. He's doing all that's possible in the context of love and holiness. The reality of who he is to redeem us. Sin wasn't just something that God made up. If you do these things, I'll like you. Sin is the reality of the universe. When we rebel against God, we are guilty. And sin is this thing that, that corrupts us, that, that uh, makes it so that when the glory of God is revealed, we'll be consumed. And God says, his word says he's a consuming fire. We've talked about that in the past. But I want to encourage you. God's not angry. If you've had an image of God being an angry taskmaster, you're still living in the wrong perception. The perception is he's a loving husband. He's a bridegroom to the bride. He's, he's laid down his life. And when we understand that, that wasn't an aberration. Jesus doesn't stand in opposition to the Father. Sometimes we get this picture that God's this angry judge and Jesus is this loving guy. We like Jesus, but we don't like God. Give me Jesus because he's loving, he's nice. But God's angry and judging and we've just got the wrong concept. He's not. Just the opposite, he's loving. This was his plan from the beginning to redeem us and to institute a new covenant, a covenant of love, similar to marriage with one commandment. Love one another as I've loved you. God himself provided the sacrifice. The sacrifice caused death to pass over. He took our sin away. He carried it away so that we can become the righteousness of God when we respond to him. And then we can have relationship. And then we're part of this wonderful uh, adventure of partnering with him for the extension of his kingdom. We'll talk about the kingdom of God next week. Can we just pray? Lord, where there's been wrong understandings, would you change our thinking? Lord, we want to be like the uh, noble Bereans who went back and studied the scriptures. I ask that you would just challenge us who have had a filter that have caused us to look at things wrongly. That we begin to see that the light comes on and we see where that comes from. And we go back and read the scripture again and see what it really says. We want to be like those guys. But Lord, more than anything, we want to know you as you really are. Yes. Where we've had the wrong concept. Maybe it's caused us to pull back 
Maybe it's caused us to be afraid. Lord, there is an honor. There is a fear of God because you're holy. But there isn't a fear that you're angry and that you're going to smack us. And Lord, where that has affected us, we just ask that you would remove it. Lord, where that image, I remember, as I've said before, as a child, I would get spanked when I disobeyed and when I went to school first time, my mom said, I'm not with you and I don't see you, but God does. And the image there in my mind was that God's ready to spank me. God's ready to smack me. And Lord, many of us have an image that if we get out of line, God's ready to smack us. And Lord, thank you that that's not the case. Change it in us where we have that. Set us free. We just de declare freedom yeah. from wrong theology. Lord, we want to be built on the right foundation. The, the center point, the, the linchpin of all of theology is that you are loving and that you've redeemed us and drawn us to yourself. Father, and, uh, I just want to pray too. Father, I just pray um, that you would impact every home. Father, where we've had wrong concepts of you, we realize now that this concept, it's incredible. It changes everything. It changes how we live. It changes how we treat one another. And so I'm asking even now as we pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would come into every household and there would be changes where changes yes, are needed. Lord. That we would see each other through your eyes of love. That we would choose to live sacrificially because you did. And the Spirit of God wants to live through us. And what a joy that actually is. Father, thank you for this precious group of people who's listening right now. And we just ask your grace and your favor over every one of them. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.